Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. Today, we are moving ahead to the transfiguration as required by us by the, in the Revised Common Lectionary. So we are in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. So, Alan, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, this part of, the, uh, of Matthew and why we're headed to the transfiguration? Well, you know, it's, it's usually the custom at the end of Epiphany that we observe Transfiguration Sunday. And so um, in all three years of the Common Lectionary, the Gospel lesson jumps ahead to... Um, each gospel writer's narrative of the of the transfiguration. I think we mentioned this last week too, because it kind of cuts us off from finishing the it whole does. Sermon on the Mount. And so um, I'm just thinking as I'm preparing um, these that, gosh, it doesn't feel like I had a good conclusion to that last section no, at all. Uh, no, not at all. I mean, you left you hanging right in the middle of, of, of Matthew mm-hmm. chapter five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it is a bit awkward. But it is. Mm-hmm. Um. Now we've we have so we've we've taken a look at Matthew, Mark's telling of the story and Luke's telling of the story and um, just as was the case in both of their uh, narratives, so it is that we have some unique um, um, emphases in Matthew's narrative, and it's you know in one respect we we have Matthew's uh, characteristic emphasis on Jesus' fulfillment of God's purposes as attested by the Hebrew Bible. This is something that seems to come to the fore in our in in our lesson for today. Now, again, as we've already seen, all three synoptic gospels have the same yeah. basic sequence of events: Peter's confession of faith in Jesus, mm-hmm. Jesus' first passion prediction. Jesus teaching about the cost of discipleship, the prediction that some of them will see the kingdom before they taste death, and the transfiguration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And each of the Gospels makes the connection between Jesus' prediction that some of them will see the kingdom, or in Matthew, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, and the transfiguration. Although we're going to find out that in Matthew, that connection is uh, is not quite as, as clear as it is in mm. Mark and Luke. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit looser connection. Um, but as we discussed last year, Luke has his own way of telling the story, while Matthew and Mark tell it almost identically. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And I would say that passages like these contribute to the two-source theory of gospel origins, where, where Matthew lines up with Mark and Luke has, has, goes his own way. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and part of what you see is when you, because when you, both Matthew and Luke do this on occasion. And so mm-hmm. one of the things you see is when, where Matthew and or Luke are are relying on Mark apparently. Um, the passages in Matthew that come from Mark or that 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 are connected to Mark are in the same sequence in Mark Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel as they are in Mark's gospel. Whereas before we saw, you know, with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew pulled in material from all over Q, all over mm-hmm. Luke's that mm-hmm. scattered all over Luke's gospel. For his sermon right, on the Mount, so right. it's a little bit different situation, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. this this is one of the main contributing supporting arguments, I guess, for the two source theory of gospel mm-hmm. origins that Mark and Q were the first written documents, and that Matthew and Luke each made use of of those two sources. But you know, I've said before, I think the composition history of the Synoptic Gospels is too complicated to to be explained by any one of the main theories. I think it's a lot more complicated than than that. I, I do think. That Q, uh, clearly, I think there was a written source that that mm-hmm. Matthew and Luke both used, um, and I think it is very possible that both Matthew and Luke made some use of Mark, um, but there there needs to be some room left for individual source material in Matthew and Luke, and there also needs to be room left for, I think, some collaboration among the gospel writers. Well, and I've just always wondered, you know, I'm just a big fan of oral history. We, yeah. Because we live in a world where we rely on written source, mm-hmm. we forget the power of oral source where people mm-hmm. memorize right. huge chunks of material and can often say it. Right. Uh, very similar. So, well, in the earliest church tradition about Mark's gospel was that Mark recorded the preaching of Peter. 
So yes. in a sense, Mark would have been writing down what was essentially oral tradition mm. before, before yeah. he wrote it down. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So. And 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 how how and and that's one of the that's one of the tasks of form criticism is to try to figure out right. you know how did the oral gospel tradition get shaped and developed mm-hmm. you know and and. Some of it is admittedly speculative, but there are some insights that we can gain from that. Yeah, no, and I, to me, I know, I think one of the challenges in the broader church is that for some people, this really challenges their faith mm-hmm. because they seem to think that there's like this one hand and God came down and this is scripture and you're supposed to understand scripture as being this, you know, v- verbatim truth that God sent down. And to me, it's just the opposite. To me, this really, really strengthens the I agree. story of Christ. I, I agree. I mean, you know, to me, um, um, what is easier for God to just dictate the words to the authors? Mm-hmm. Or, or, or I guess what's, I wouldn't say what's easier. I would say what is what is more of a miraculous and just an amazing uh, act of God, that God would just dictate word for word, mm-hmm. or that God would use these people with their different in their different mm-hmm. situations of life to present this really not just uh, one portrait of Jesus, but four portraits right. of Jesus uh, that gives us really what I would I have said is more like a right. 3D full in color version right. of Jesus to, to, you know, because each of the gospel writers has their right. own emphases. And, and I think they were, they were meant to, and, and, and we're meant to see that Jesus was more than just, uh, you know, a, um, a two dimensional figure in black I and agree. white. I agree. I agree. It definitely gives uh, more dimensions and yeah. it, it frankly gives us a more of a chance to understand how Christ is working in our lives throughout our lives, yeah. not something, not something kind of flat. So yes, yeah. I agree a hundred percent. So let's go ahead and move on. Yeah. Um, so Matthew introduces the transfiguration in much the same way as Mark, but as I mentioned before, one with one notable exception, and that is that Matthew connects the statement, truly I tell you there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, more closely with the preceding episode regarding the cost of discipleship. And that seems to ship the focus of the transfiguration to Jesus' parousia, his return, whereas Mark connects it more clearly with the transfiguration as a kind of seeing that the kingdom of God has come with power, mm. perhaps already in Jesus' ministry, or a lot of people see that the transfiguration is a preview of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. But in Matthew's gospel, it seems to be pushed farther out than that. It's pushed farther uh, toward the parousia. That's interesting. And of course, when I read Reformers and everything's collapsed, mm-hmm. I, would, I would argue that the Reformers, and also kind of... Um, not thinking Mark is so hot, um, would kind of agree with this first one, the parousia, mm-hmm. as being kind of what it alludes to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so then Matthew tells us, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And and this is framed in almost verbatim agreement mm-hmm. with Matthew 9-2. Not entirely. Mark, but, Mark, but, Mark. I'm sorry, with Mark 9-2. Not entirely, but almost verbatim agreement. And um, as is the statement that he was transfigured before mm-hmm. them in, in, in Matthew 17 too. And so, you know, I think it's important to see that as with the Sermon on the Mount, it may be significant that um, the mountain or specifically here, the high mountain, which, which Matthew and Mark share, that's that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that this took place on a high mountain is something that Matthew and Mark agree on is the place of revelation in Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel. And, and that may reflect, again, an emphasis on comparing Jesus with Moses in Matthew's gospel, as we talked about earlier when we were, when we were talking yes. about some of the themes that in, in Matthew's um, infancy narratives and then setting up the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount as well, you know, that the mountain seems to be an important place of revelation for Matthew's yes, gospel. Yes, 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 I agree with that. Um, interesting, well, as you're getting into this, this next section, but um, I am curious about, are these exactly the same verbatim? I mean, are Matthew and and Mark using the same exact words? Mostly, not 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 one hundred percent, but mostly, yes. Okay, mostly. And and I guess my next question is, if there are differences, are they significant? Yes, they are, and, and, and we're going to see some so, of those. Yeah, we're going to yeah, see some I of guess those I'm as we go ke- along. And I think you're going to head, head head into that, yeah. and that's really what's on my mind right yeah. now. As we're we're going to see some it. of those okay. as we go along, definitely. Yep. Now, so all three synoptic gospels have their own unique way 
of describing Jesus' transfiguration, actually what happened, what mm-hmm. they saw, right? right? So Mark says that his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. That's Mark 9, 3. Matthew says that his face shone, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became bright as light mm-hmm. in Matthew 9, 2. And then Luke seems to be simplifying the other two um, um, in that uh, he says, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling mm-hmm. white. So the focus is more on the clothing in, in Luke and in Mark, um, whereas um, uh, Matthew also adds the idea that his face shone mm-hmm. uh, just as his clothes did. So, you know, uh, um, I would say that each of the synoptic gospel writers was trying to su- express something really difficult to put into words. I mean, how do you, how do you describe an experience like this in, in, in language? Uh, well, right? and that's, that's interesting. And that's kind of why I'm surprised they're not exactly the same in some mm-hmm, ways, mm-hmm. you know, that this had been handed down as tradition, or maybe it was attempt, a specific attempt to try to, to explain better than the one before. Well, and you know, as, as I've often observed, you see the most verbatim agreement when it comes to transmitting Jesus' words. Yeah. And you see the most freedom when it comes to how they frame the narrative. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. And so I think you see that going on here. Okay. Uh, and now I would say, though, that, that this this situation of, of really expressing something that's too difficult to put into words, that's characteristic of biblical theophanies in the Hebrew Bible, as well as Christophanies in the New Testament. Uh, we see in Second Peter 1, 16 and 17, where um, the author of Second Peter speaks about the apostles as eyewitnesses to Jesus' power and coming, mm-hmm. his dunamin and parousion, mm-hmm. and his majesty that he received, and that he received honor and glory from the heavenly voice. Um, we also see uh, Paul maybe trying to refer to his experience on the road to Damascus. Uh, it is God who said, light will shine out of darkness, who have shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, you know, Paul seems to have a better way with words here, but it's still mm-hmm. expressing something that's really hard. H- how do you put it into words? You know, the right. glory of God in the face of Christ. That's, right. that's an interesting Interesting phrase. Well, and you know, at the end of the day, I think mm. because it's so hard to describe, maybe mm-hmm. all three of these help give us at least yeah. some kind of vision. For I think ourselves. they're all trying to express, you know, their own understanding of what happened. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. Now, as in Mark and, and Luke, Matthew reports that suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him in, in Matthew 17, 3. And again, Matthew's narrative is in almost verbatim agreement with Mark's. Um, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, especially in Matthew's gospel, points toward Jesus as the one who would fulfill the purposes of God as outlined in the Hebrew Bible, with Moses and Elijah representing key prophets who were initially rejected by the people but ultimately vindicated by God. And as key figures, they are also both key figures in advocating fidelity to the covenant between God mm-hmm. and the people. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, these are some these are some ways in which Moses and Elijah and Jesus all had something in common. Mm-hmm. I think. Now, Matthew's account of the transfiguration may also point toward Jesus' fulfillment of the specific eschatological role of Moses, as Matthew emphasizes that John the Baptist fulfilled the eschatological oh, sure. eschatological role of Elijah. Elijah. We're going to see that Matthew seventeen really this this account of the transfiguration in Matthew's gospel shouldn't stop in verse nine; it should go on through mm, verse thirteen, okay. because um, that passage is more closely connected with the transfiguration account in Matthew. We're mm-hmm. going to see that when we get to the end. Okay. Um, and so, uh, moving on then, what apparently, um, neither, neither, um, Matthew or Mark talk about the kind of interesting, um, traditions of death and, and, uh, Jesus departure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Only Luke tells us that, um, Jesus was discussing his, his departure with Moses and Elijah. And again, I think in the context of Matthew's gospel, it would seem that Matthew is framing the transfiguration as a preview of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Again, this is from Matthew 16, 28. Some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Or even more specifically, as he says when he's being interrogated by the high priest at the end of Matthew in Matthew 26, 64, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So again, it seems in Matthew that it's pointing forward more toward the right. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, not only are Elijah and Moses there, too, but then 
the, the whole idea of setting up the tents. Yeah. And again, all three synoptic gospels report Peter's request that he set up three yeah. tents on the mountain. Okay. But Matthew softens um, Mark's gospel here. Mark has a little bit of a harder emphasis on Peter's lack of understanding, but which that's of course, Mark, that's a know, theme in Mark's gospel, as right? My, as my college right. said, the clueless disciples, right? right? And that's yeah. a theme in Mark. And, and you know, Mark 9, 6, he did not know what to say for they were terrified. You know, and um, I would say it's a fair question whether Matthew left out this emphasis in Mark's gospel or whether P- or Mark added it to the account. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fair question. And I think this is one of my problems with the, with the two-source hypothesis. It's too quick to jump to, to saying that Matthew was altering Mark, that Mark was the original. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we know that for sure. So we have this difference, basically. Mark emphasizes Peter's lack of understanding as the reason for setting up the request. Matthew omits that. And so and furthermore, what we have to what we should see here is that Matthew has Peter called Jesus Lord. Yeah. Mark has him called Jesus Rabbi. And Luke has 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 Jesus has Peter called Jesus Master or Pistata, and both Rabbi and Master or Pistata are are more sort of fairly non-committal titles of respect that even Jesus' opponents could use for him. But Matthew, one of Matthew's emphases is to show that the disciples were truly disciples. Yes, yes. They, they may have been those of little faith. That's a theme in Matthew's gospel when he addresses the disciples. But they are mm. portrayed as true disciples, and uh, you know one of the th- way and actually. Actually, one of the this is one of the main differences between Matthew's and Mark's account right. here, and and especially the fact that Matthew has a tendency to substitute Lord for other addresses, right. other forms of address that the, the disciples use for Jesus. He he has them address him Lord as Lord far more frequently. You know, I think if Matthew had access to Mark, right, and and read Mark, and this might have been a very intentional way. Maybe people were dissing on it <laughs> and that's I mean, possible I, I, I mean I, what would be the what would be the shift i, t- I mean i tend to see it as 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 matthew's matthew's got an emphasis on discipleship and so matthew's trying yeah, to help help his true. community learn what it means yeah, to be a disciple right right so yeah. just a different emphasis yeah yeah i think it's i think that's yeah, it. yeah that yeah. makes that well obviously he would have been aware of it right he would have been aware of mark's lens and been aware of of the role of the disciples in Mark's mm-hmm. in Mark's view, so mm-hmm. um, it is, I think, very intentional then that he yeah. would, would shift to so that. Too. I think yeah. so too. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, um, so moving on, then, um, what happens with with Peter? And- well, so in you know, in in Matthew's gospel, and again, we have to read this from Matthew's perspective. Peter's request that they set up the three tents is based on his declaration. For it is good for us to be here. That's mm-hmm. that's all you have in Matthew. Mm-hmm. You don't have any of this. Um, he didn't know what to say because he was afraid. Right. It just it's just for it is good for us to be mm-hmm. here. And so I think in Matthew's gospel, this may we may see a connection here with the theme of God is with us. Because mm-hmm. the tent or the skene was in the Hebrew Bible a reference to the tabernacle, yes. okay. which was the place where God's presence dwelled mm-hmm. with the people. And I, Matthew would have been well aware of this. And I think this is also reinforced by the fact that the only response to Peter's request to put up the three tents mm-hmm. was that they were overshadowed by a bright cloud. And again, in the Septuagint, the cloud is clearly associated with God's presence. Mm-hmm the pillar of cloud and fire in Exodus and Numbers, and also the cloud on Mount Sinai when Moses went up to the mountain. Well, and it also fits your last, your last point, is that it, it kind of emphasizes their role as disciples, as to witnesses. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool, mm-hmm. too. So uh, then, then moving on, they all the Gospels report about God responding to them. Yep, they all three report that a voice spoke to Peter, James, and John from the cloud, but they report the content of what was said in ways that are consistent with their own purposes. Yeah. Yeah. In Luke, Jesus is called the chosen one, which is a, a, probably an allusion to Isaiah 42.1, and, and that likely reflects Luke's emphasis on Jesus as the servant of the Lord of Second Isaiah. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus is called the beloved, or agapetos, both of which, I mean, the, the, and, and in both, there's, there's, there's something of an echo, at least, of the voice at the baptism. But in Mark's gospel, this is the first time that Jesus is identified so clearly as God's son to his disciples. And, you know, we have to remember in Mark's gospel, the voice at the baptism is directed toward Jesus. 
you are my beloved. Mm-hmm. You are my beloved son, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so, um, again, and this goes along with Mark's theme that, you know, um, nobody, nobody actually acknowledges Jesus as son of God until after the cross. And, right. and you know, it, it right. takes the cross to be able to, right. to make that yes, ac- yes, ac- yes. acknowledgement, that affirmation. But in, in Matthew's version, the voice at the transfiguration exactly, exactly repeats the voice at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And because in Matthew's version, Yes. The voice at the baptism is a declaration, right, right. right? Yeah, and that is, to the reader, you pick up on that right away. I mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's one of the first things I remember picking up when reading through Matthew. Yeah, yeah. There, um, these kind of mm, benchmarks, if you yeah. will, in Jesus' life. Yeah, that's and then right. here it is, boom, right, boom. Right, Yeah. And so in Matthew, then, the transfiguration serves as a kind of confirmation of what had already been declared at Jesus' baptism. Um, and, and, you know, I think this is something characteristic of Matthew, um, this confirmation of Jesus' identity on multiple occasions. And we have to remember that what's happening here in the transfiguration is Peter has just confessed that Jesus is, is the Christ, the son of, the, son of God in Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel. But then Jesus follows up by saying, yes, and I'm going to have to die. And Peter says, no, this can't happen. Peter, th- that's incompatible with his understanding of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, right? Right, 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 and, right. And so, um, so you've got a bit of a tension in Matthew's gospel there going on. And, and so then the trans- voice at the transfiguration reaffirms, yes, this is my son, mm-hmm. the beloved one, mm-hmm. with whom I'm well pleased. And yes, he's going to die and the idea, and the implicit, implicit idea is, yes, this is true. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ, and he is going to die. And, you know, in a sense, Peter, your, 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 your assumptions are off base. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sort of echoes what Jesus said earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. that you're thinking about the things of men and not the things right, of God. Right, right. And so then we, then we move on because we're not done with um, Moses and Elijah. Right. And again, in, in Matthew's gospel, the command to hear Jesus from the voice, may reflect the language of the Hebrew Bible in which Moses was identified as the true prophet of God, whom the people were to hear. And, um, you know, basically Moses promised that God would provide a prophet like him after he was gone in in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your people. You shall heed such, Such a, a prophet. prophet, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know this again might contribute toward. We've seen some some glimpses of a Moses um, Christ co- connection, you know, in Matthew's gospel, and this mm-hmm. pr- may provide another glimpse of that connection in, yeah. in Matthew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we continue on because this this brings about fear of the yeah. disciples. Now, and all three again, all three synoptic gospels report that Peter, James, and John responded at some point. With fear. But Mark says that Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified, using the theme of fear to reinforce the idea that Peter misunderstood and thus misspoke when Mm -hmm. he asked to build the three tents, right? Right. So that's Mark's version. Luke tells us they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Mm -hmm. So that's a little different emphasis Mm -hmm. in Luke. Uh, so that was oh, the presence right. of the cloud that right. was more frightening to them than the, than the appearance of Moses and right. Elijah or the transformation of Jesus' appearance. Only Matthew reports that the disciples fell to the ground and were overcome by fear in Matthew 17, 6 in response to the voice ah, from the cloud and, okay. and as a typical response to a theophany yes. in the Hebrew Bible. That's right. right. That definitely is a tie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, falling to the ground and being overcome mm-hmm. by fear. And thus, only Ma- also, only Matthew tells us that Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up and do not be mm-hmm. afraid. Which, yeah. Yeah, I've been, th- you know, as I've been processing that, and this is probably not a topic for today, but just this whole idea of fear associated mm-hmm. with God. I, I, I guess, I, th- I guess as pointed out here, that's a particularly a theme that we definitely see in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, I mean that's and that's that is that that too is a common response. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, there's you have a theophany and and whoever is the human witness responds with fear and oftentimes mm-hmm. falling on their face and the and the response is do not be afraid. I guess that's my kind of a, my that's question a for thing. you would be this in terms of the word fear and I'm thinking particularly as used in Hebrew, does it have a richer connotation than it does in our well, you know, you've got you've you've got in the Hebrew Bible 
this issue with the fear of the Lord as the mm-hmm. beginning of all wisdom and as, as something that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think we have to distinguish between the fear of the Lord that leads us to wisdom and uh, this, this sort of natural, maybe fear for your life. You mm-hmm. know, you're fearing for your life because you have this um, just um, overwhelming experience with some kind of phenomenon that, I mean, perhaps the only word you can use for it is supernatural. Mm-hmm. And, and um, in most cases in the Hebrew Bible where people experience theophanies, the source of their fear is, I have seen God's face and I'm going to die because that was the, that was the right. typical assumption was no one can see God's face and live. And so the, the typical response to theophanies was fear of death. And so I think, I think that's a different, different matter from right. fear of the Lord. Yeah, and yet... And yet they merge together in some respects. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's the right. same word. So um, now, um, what happens when they, um, you know, after Jesus, you know, tells them not to be afraid? Right. And again, as in all three Gospels, Matthew reports, when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone in verse 8. However... Again, Matthew emphasizes that it was Jesus alone more than the other synoptic gospels by his unique wording. So, so udena aidan aime autan yesun manan. And so one, two of the things that, that, that Matthew does in the Greek is he adds this emphatic aime. They, they saw no one except Jesus himself Mm, alone because you don't really need that in there as an emphasis piece right um you know it's it's phrased differently in mark and luke okay and 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 the other thing is that that all mark and luke also both have some version of manos alone Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. but matthew puts it at the end Mm -hmm. and i think that would be for emphasis so the emphasis is jesus alone they saw no one except jesus alone and so the idea is interesting. And Gene Boring really suggests that that this is intentional. That the Peter and the others wanted to build tents to stay on the mountain with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah as a way of staying in God's presence. But as we've already discussed, you know, in our in our treatment of Matthew's infancy narratives, God's presence right. is to be found in Jesus in Matthew's gospel, especially based on Matthew one twenty three mm-hmm. with the Emmanuel passage. And furthermore, I think we should we should remember that moving forward, it was on the mountain, right? On the mountain, right. ding, 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 in Galilee, that the disciples met the risen Christ who assured them, I am with you always. Mm-hmm. And so this theme of presence is one that is, that is important mm-hmm. in Matthew's gospel. And so this provides us with another interpretive lens, I think, as well for the, mm-hmm. for the transfiguration yeah, I in, do in too. Matthew's I do perspective. Too. And so that kind of begins to... The, the end. Well, I guess we have one more verse for this week. Yes, yes. and so so Matthew seventeen nine is a part of our lectionary passage for this week, but it really introduces, I would say, the conclusion to the transfiguration story in Matthew's gospel. Uh, as they were coming down the mountain, Matthew, in substantial agreement with Mark, reports that Jesus instructs the disciples to tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, you know, we have previously discussed in, in podcast episodes um, the nature of the transfiguration experience. Was it a vision? Did Elijah and Moses actually appear? Did something about Jesus' physical appearance actually change? One of the unique features of Matthew's gospel is that only Matthew describes the event with the word vision, orama which occurs only here in the New Testament outside of Acts, where it's mm-hmm. used 10 out of 11 times to describe visions that instructed and guided the apostles. Mm-hmm. Paul's vision of the man from Macedonia, calling him over to help. Right, right, uh, right. Peter's vision of the, of the sheet let down. You right. Know, th- this is the word that's used. Now, I would say, however, I don't think that means that, that Matthew is trying to imply that some physical event did not occur. I think, rather, vision was a category of revelatory experience common in the Hebrew Bible, and this was something that Matthew, right. this was a concept that Matthew um, used to right. understand what was going I on. Think, I think the problem here is the English word, right? Yep. Because we're putting it in our context of what we think is a vision, and this is a much more full body experience Mm -hmm. than that in our context we think of a vision as something that didn't really happen it's just something you saw in a dream right exactly and it's um i think for these folks this is this is this is captured all of their sense experience Mm -hmm. i mean this is something they would say 
But it wasn't just a vision. It was right. really there. Is the mm. you know the vision of the burning bush was the bush really burning? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So now, then, while both Matthew and Mark report the the following dialogue between Jesus and the disciples regarding the eschatological role of Elijah, in Matthew, the way he words their question to Jesus ties this much more closely to the transfiguration story. Why then? Do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In Mark, it's just why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And so this this little, it's un, it's the Greek mm-hmm. word un, and this little, it, it's a connective word, and it, it points us back. So, the, mm-hmm. you know, right. everything that's gone before then is 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 connected to the, the disciples at question, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Mm-hmm. Because they've just seen Elijah and Moses, right. and, and they're confused, and they're wondering, you know, in, in, Typical Judaism of the day believed that Elijah had an eschatological role to play uh, in the kingdom of God, and so you know they're they're but they're thinking Jesus is the Messiah, and so they're not really sure what's going on. Furthermore, the way Mark words this dialogue focuses more attention on Jesus as the Son of Man who will suffer than on Jesus' declaration that Elijah is indeed coming and will restore our things, and that Elijah has already come, and mm-hmm. they, they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they mm-hmm. pleased. So in Mark, there's more emphasis on Jesus than on John the Baptist. In Matthew, the emphasis is more on um, the, the idea of, right. of John the Baptist fulfilling an eschatological right. role. right. And, and, you know, the idea, especially we've seen already um, um, back in Advent, we saw that there was an emphasis, the kingdom had already begun with the coming of John the Baptist in Matthew right. eleven twelve, mm-hmm. And so in the setting of Matthew's account, then perhaps uh, of the transfiguration, this dialogue may therefore implicitly point to Jesus as one to fulfill the eschatological role of Moses. That, that works within Matthew's yeah, context. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Again, yeah. and that's that contributes to that Matthew Jesus uh, that Moses Jesus connection yeah, in Matthew. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so and finally at the end what would you conclude about this um, passage? Well, I would say that as we've seen with Mark's and Luke's account of the transfiguration, Matthew also tells us the story by focusing on details that correspond to his unique themes in his narrative. Um, emphasizing Jesus' fulfillment of God's purposes, uh, emphasizing the confirmation of Jesus' identity as Son of God, even though he's declared that he must die in weakness, and emphasizing the assurance that Jesus is the one who mediates the presence of God. These are all important themes in Matthew's Gospel. Thank you, Alan. Thanks. Hi, friends, we're back, and we're going to shift gears here and take a look at what the Reformers have to say about Matthew's version of the, of the Transfiguration. And so, Christy, tell us what you found today. Sure. And so, you know, we talked about this last year, and so many of the themes of last year in Luke are also present, obviously, with harmonizing of the gospel. So, but I found a few new things to offer, so um, we'll go ahead with it. But, the, you know, the most important theme for the transfiguration is Christ's divinity. It's a Christology question, and specifically that Jesus is the Son of God. And as we mentioned last year, it was important for God to acknowledge Christ's divinity in front of the disciples. So in this mountaintop experience, Christ emptied himself following God's plan by by going there by by allowing for the situation to happen so christ was following in that expectation that god had wanted for him and it is um calvin in particular is one of the main persons to support that this tech claims that the support supports the homoousian so um and he's not the only one by the way this was a pretty typical a reformation theme that this was a makes me think made me thinks it makes me think that the reformers were looking for ways to support the idea of christ as being of the same substance with the father i, I you know those those issues are all you know all the heresies of the church are mm-hmm. revisited right. during the reformation and so in the minds are people that Many people are coming at arguments that you know Christ wasn't, even though that was part of the traditional church. Everything's back on the mm-hmm. table again. Yeah, we um, might think historically, well, that was settled at the Council of Nicaea, right. but with the Reformation, it's all, it all stirred comes, up again. It's, yeah. it's all stirred up again. Yeah. And of course, relationships are beginning to increase with the with the Orthodox Church as well. Um, there's more communication there again, and so 
that also is leading people to, again, what do we believe? What do we want to assert? So this is, becomes really important to kind of um, put into place this... Distinguish the dis- reformers' theology. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So in Matthew, of course, we revisit those same words they see at ba- baptism. And this was not lost on the reformers. They were v- very aware of this. And they see this particularly as an affirmation by God of Christ's person being of God. And, um, again, the same substance of the Father. Hmm. And Calvin also emphasizes that the way we know God is through Christ's revelation. Mm -hmm. So, if you will, it's just reemphasizing that this is part of Christ's revelation right there, Hmm. that God acknowledges who Christ really is. Um, Now, just to add on to this, Luther pushes pushes even to claim this is a Trinitarian text, um, claiming Father speaks, Son to whom the Father speaks, and the Holy Spirit in the shining cloud. (laughs) I think he's reaching there. Maybe, but they were also trying to just assert Mm -hmm. that scripturally that the Trinity is supported, and that was an important part for them. Well, and as we've said before, part of the problem is the word Trinity is not found in the New Testament. Exactly. And so, you know, this is one of the objections that that is raised, and so you're you're left with finding the passages where I would say it's clear the New Testament is Trinitarian. It's just that they never use words like homoousios or Trinity. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Um, One just brief theme I wanted to pull out this year is how the Reformers saw this passage as a bridge between the Old and New Testaments. So with Moses present and and Elijah, um, but for Moses, there was this connection to the law and Elijah the prophets. And so Jesus was presented as a fulfillment of both. But again, Moses and Elijah were important figures in part to show kind of the overarching, um, overarching um, promise of God, if you will. So um, then, of course, as Christ remained and the other two faded, it was a reminder that Christ was the last word, the fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I think that's kind of obvious, uh, but yet that was something also some of the reformers pointed out. Sure. Um, They also saw a connection between the transfiguration and the post-resurrection appearance of Christ. Um, And so the divine nature of this is shown with the white garments, which were in part to allow those still human figures to get a glimpse of what they could not understand, but also look ahead to what it would mean in in the reunification with Christ. Um, So they saw this connection between the glorified Christ and the suffering Christ. And they even go so far as to assume that the resurrected Christ likely looked like this description in the transfiguration. (laughs) And furthermore, it was a, quote, testimony of the immortality of the soul. The idea that Moses and Elijah Mm. could meet Jesus on the mountaintop was evidence of this. Yeah, I can't. Don't think I can go with them on that one. You know, in in the Hebrew Bible, Moses and Elijah are treated as sort of exceptional in terms of the the way they died. Well, and you know, I think or did they die? You know, is right, the question. right. But I think that yeah, I mean, this was a a real concern during during mm-hmm. the Reformation. Right? Is um, everything is all the questions are asked again, and yeah. and all of the assumptions that they made about death and dying and what. The soul and the souls connected to the body, all that's come into question again. Mm -hmm. So I found a nice piece by, um, well, uh, uh, first of all, a a couple people. One, there's a Lutheran reformer who is really a contemporary of Melanchthon, um, although he actually, um, he'll actually kind of go against Melanchthon because he'll be at one of the, what we call the ultra Lutherans. So he'll support what, um, Phil, uh, Melanchthon is kind of known as a Philippist, and he really tries to go and kind of reunite. What what can we agree with the Roman Catholics? Mm-hmm. There's there this attempt by Melanchthon to go that way, and then there's the Niso Lutherans. These are the ultra Lutherans that are that are like we're not gonna we're not gonna budge. And so he was kind of ended up in the opposite camp of Melanchthon. But his name is David Chetrius, and I think um, it is interesting how um, and he excuse me he believed that the transfiguration was a for, foreshadowing of what our resurrection bodies would look huh. like um, <laughs> wow so this scripture is kind of a proof text for what happens to us when we die i was surprised they jumped from this description to us but they did uh, does david well, I mean, there, did there is there is this um, i believe it's in first john um, where you know 
Uh, John says, we will see him as he is, and for we will be like him, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you, yeah. you have that in exactly. the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's interesting is this began to impact the theology of death and funeral practices. So I ran into a study by David Crasey, um, and he's looking at... Um, Tudor Stuart uh, era, so that's England, um, uh, burial practices. So he's really digging into funeral rites um, that talks about the change in burial traditions. So in the Roman Catholic tradition, remember, a soul would go to purgatory. But according to Crecy, in the post-Reformation funeral, we see a liturgy asking for the release of the soul for from the bands of death. So in other words, there's no purgatory, but there's immediate mm. move from death mm-hmm. and then to be um, to be with Christ, to be resurrected. And what's interesting about it is that's still reflected in our, our liturgy today Surely. in the, in the pre- Presbyterian Church. So it's in a Protestant tradition, therefore, we do not pray, obviously, for the dead as they are now alive with Christ. Whereas in the Roman Catholic tradition, we pray for dead to release these souls from purgatory. Mm. And you see that, right? You walk into a Roman Catholic church, you there are prayers for the dead, there's places, there's there's priests that give masses on the side praying for these folks. Mm. There are those little candles that you right. are lighting. Right. Um, also, very frequently, um, prayers to be released from purgatory, this kind of thing. Wow. So it's a big part of the a kind of the the I want to say the lore, but um, part of the tradition and um, oh, the rituals the surrounding ritual. death. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, in so the, the Catholic tradition, even today. Absolutely, yeah. today. Yeah. So the transfiguration of Christ in this passage and acted as the image of God being well pleased and a promise for those who are of the elect, mm. and it made its way into the liturgy. So, mm. quote. Um, this is from Crazy's and sure, sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. We commend the Almighty God, our sister and brother. I'm sorry, that is from um, that is from the PCUSA. Um, yeah, I mean, how many times yeah. have have I said that exactly. in the funeral? I mean, exactly. Yeah. So, but apparently some Calvinists were upset with this, and so um, as Crazy says. They were upset with, quote, hope in terms of assurance, but true to Calvin's belief, anyone can hope and only God knows who is saved. But there is this confidence that if you are of the church, that you will be you were not reunited with Christ and inheriting this type of transfigured body. What is perhaps surprising is that many of the extreme Puritan groups did not want any burial done with clergy present. It was not necessary. The salvation of the individual was between God and that person, and there were no prayers needed for that deceased person. Mm. So interesting, this whole idea, um, you know, the role of the clergy completely gone because this is uh, this is one of those examples. Life that, and death. I mean, Christ is the one who's the Lord of life and death, exactly, right? Exactly, <laughs> so. exactly. So here, and this is all you know, partly because we see this in the transfiguration. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very interesting. So... Moving on, while I've talked about the spirit, this does not fully explain what they believe happened to the bodies. Mm. And I didn't go into this in detail, but I did find that Bullinger talked about this and claims that the body is not destroyed, but that the, quote, corruption will be removed from it and the splendor <laughs> of glory will be added. So You must be thinking at the resurrection. At the resu- Well, at the resurrection, but I think it's important because it becomes involved with how we in the tradition, treat bodies, mm-hmm. which is not to cremate them because you need them. Right. Right. Of course you do. You yeah. need them. And and, and 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 then you've got the funeral practice of burying people facing the east because Christ abso- is going to come absolutely. from the east. <laughs> well, and if you know anything about if you know anything about uh, <clears throat> um, cemeteries in the old days, if you were clearly not of the elect, they buried you the other way. <laughs> <laughs> And you can find it, yeah, oh, wow. buried back. And, and that's there were all, uh, the ultimate, the final insult. Huh? Yeah, there's some folks that study this. Another one is like for folks that um, maybe had believed to have a demon, they would actually bury them inside of like a cage. Oh, wow. So the demon can't get out. Wow. Oh, there's all kinds of bizarre funeral pra- uh, burial practices. Mm. Or perhaps somebody's not even allowed to be in the cemetery. Right. right. Um, and I dare say that. Um, this happened to my, um, it was my, well, it would have been my, um, my husband's, um, grandparents. She was Roman Catholic. He was not. 
um, and they would not allow them to be buried in the Catholic um, consecrated ground. Yeah, in yeah. a consecrated ground. And I think finally they agreed that they could be buried there, but they wouldn't put the, any name on the headstone. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and then furthermore, Bullinger argues that Christ will return in full body, that Christ is in Christ, being fully human and fully God in his being. And I think he doesn't state this, but this is kind of an argument for the ontological trinity, mm -hmm. right? That Christ is from Christ's very beginning, both um, human and divine. Yeah. So, And number four, of course, um, this passage provides us some understanding of God's goodness, and God's continued concern for the earth. And again, we're going to uh, Mr. Chaitreus, who writes that when Moses and Elijah came, it showed that the saints are in constant prayer for the mm. church. Those who have come before, like Moses and Elijah, who are called on, called on God to lead the people, are evidence of God's continued guidance. And I think it furthermore shows God's good creation. I, I, f I find it surprising that a reformer would, would, would appeal to... God's goodness in that the saints are in constant prayer for the church because it almost sounds, well, I, I know it's different per, perhaps from the Roman Catholic right. cult of the saints, but it's, right. <laughs> well, you'd think they want to avoid that like the plague. You would think so. But this is a Lutheran guy, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is a Lutheran guy. So you're going to hear a little more emphasis. It's just on using the saints as intercessors, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, but it is, it does have a ring about it that is interesting, yeah. but, but the, there's an acknowledgement that the saints are there and, you know, they would look at folks, you know, within the Lutheran tradition, you see a lot more use of saint names for mm -hmm. places and things. And you do in the Reformed tradition, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, but interesting, interesting point. Um, and then I'm going to move to, um, of course, one of the main ones, and I did stress this last time, but I think it's so important for us to understand Reformation is God's authority. And one of the main themes of this text is the authority of God, and that is seen in God's claim on Jesus, God coming in the cloud. So, for example, for Calvin, the space of the cloud was to shield the disciples from God the Almighty. It was a way to remind them that they were mortal and not able to fully see God's greatness. They were not allowed to have this experience beyond th this greatness. So the voice in the cloud does not correspond to a physical shape, but reminds us that we enter God's presence by mm. faith alone. It reminds me of Moses being, being uh, instructed to hide in the cleft of the rock and God places his mm, hand upon absolutely. him to cover Moses so that he can't see his face, but he's allowed to see God's backside. <laughs> yes, 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 right? So, so yeah, they, they couldn't see God face to face, so there was a cloud to keep them from, from, from doing that. Mm -hmm. And as we mentioned last time, <laughs> the important part about this in terms of Reformation theology is the idea that no human being gets to be in conversation with God above anyone else. Mm -hmm. No, so, no need for a mediator. Exactly. Yeah. God's authority means that no human authority has any special inroads to God. So the interpretation here directly attacks the idea of the Roman Catholic Church priesthood as they claimed a position above others. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, the role of Peter in this gave backing to the idea of Peter as the first pope and being significantly over others. But the Protestant reformers do not buy this. After all, Peter clearly did not understand what he experienced. And remember, that's that's not necessarily Matthew coming into this, but that's the, you know, the uniting, harmonizing. harmonizing together. Right, right. So this is highlighted also in Luther's theology. The emphasis on God's sovereignty, along with the priesthood of all believers, essentially got rid of the priestly office. And in this passage, you could interpret that the position of three or four apostles as having an hierarchy. Mm -hmm. But here, the emphasis is on what they do not know and do not understand as representative of all believers. So this is a fundamental understanding that their authority comes through their faith in God, or perhaps this is better stated in that they did not have any authority at all. Mm. Only God does. Yeah, sure. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, everyone. We're back. And um, on my heart is really why Transfiguration Sunday matters. I mean, 
here it is. It's in all the gospels. It's, I mean, it's this mountaintop experience. It's a kind of a big deal. And yet I bet most of our parishioners have no idea that it comes and goes every year. And so I guess, how can we highlight this or why is this important in the church year? Well, I mean, first of all, I think part of the problem is if you if you if you just did a survey and said what is the transfiguration, there'd be a lot of people who would just leave it blank. They wouldn't know what the transfiguration is. I think is. they absolutely even though even though they've probably seen bulletins and or now PowerPoint presentations for years that say Transfiguration Sunday, right? Right. And or they've heard pastors speak about the transfiguration. They it just hasn't. It hasn't stuck, and for some reason, it hasn't gotten traction with them. And maybe part of the problem is, is that we're trying to, you know, we we we're taking sort of an approach similar to the the reformers in that we harmonize the life of Jesus. And you know, to me, I think where Scripture comes alive is when you take the Gospel of Matthew in its particularity and address, you know, what's going on with Matthew. Right, I think I that's agree. where I think that's where the New Testament can come alive. You take you you look at the historical context, especially, or you look at the thematic mm-hmm. context, and you and you really highlight that. So, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, you know, you've got this very clear emphasis from the baptism that right. God is identifying Jesus as His beloved Son, and that He's well pleased with Him, and you know that gets echoed with the um, transfiguration, the voice at the transfiguration. You could say as well, that gets echoed at the cross with all the things that happen in Matthew's gospel that you don't see in the other gospels, right? right? Right. In connection with Jesus' death. Um, And so, you know, you've got this theme in Matthew of, yeah, God is is giving his uh, attestation to Jesus uh, in in front of the crowds mm-hmm. and, and perhaps, you know, particularly before the disciples. Um, and I think that ties into Matthew's theme of discipleship in that, you know, Matthew sees the disciples as true followers, but they're weak in faith. And these are, these are confirmations or encouragements of mm-hmm. their faith. Mm-hmm. Also, I think in the setting, you've got this whole situation where, you know, Peter is... Um, um, has makes this amazing confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Uh, and we've, you know, we've we've been through Mark, we've been through Luke, we've seen already. You know, that statement is different in all three Gospels as well. Um, and I believe um, that Matthew's is the most full statement. In 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 um, in Mark's Gospel, it's just you're the Christ. Mm-hmm. Because remember, Son of God is reserved for right. only special occasions in Mark's gospel. In in Luke, it's you are the Christ, the Son of God. Right. In Matthew, it's you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Which mm. you know, Living God is a is a strong theme in the Hebrew Bible. So Peter makes this really exalted declaration, and and then Jesus goes on to say. Yeah, and, you know, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter says, no, this can't happen. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right, right. Right? He, that doesn't, doesn't compete right. for him. It it's a non sequitur. Right. And so we could say, you know, to some extent that, you know, you have this servant Christology coming in that, yes, right. he is the Christ, but he's going to fulfill the role of the servant of, mm-hmm. of God who's going to give his life for the sake of, of others. And, and so is it a position of strength or is it a position of right. weakness? And, and, and it really you have to have the transfiguration in order to, to, to show that dichotomy, if you will, that, that, that the fullness, the, uh, the pinnacle, the mountaintop to the death. Well, well and I, I would, you could do it that way. I, I would say that, you know, what I'm thinking in terms of, of Matthew's version of the transfiguration is, you know, here, here's Peter. He, mm-hmm. you know, what did he witness the baptism? We don't know who was there at right. the baptism in terms of his disciples, but we've got this big declaration of Jesus' baptism. You know, they they right. follow him, right? Because they seem to know that there's something unique right. about Jesus. Um, 
Peter knows enough to make this amazing declaration about about Jesus, but he doesn't understand what he says. Right? right? He he he's, he doesn't get it yet, and there is some of that misunderstanding in Matthew, although it's not as em- highly emphasized uh, as in Mark. And and and, and so P- Jesus follows up with saying, "Yeah, I'm going to die," and Peter says, "No, this can't happen." And so it's almost like the transfiguration comes in and says, "Yes, this is my son," and yes. He is going to die. Mm-hmm. And yes, I am well pleased with him for being willing to be obedient mm-hmm. to the point right. of death. Well, that's know. kind of what Calvin was getting after, yeah. right? That this was Jesus emptying himself yeah. in going to the mountaintop, right? Showing that he's going to follow with yes. this specific and, yeah, sure. and be recognized by right. God in this role, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, one of the things you were talking there about Peter, and I, I am curious, should the emphasis here be more on Jesus and Jesus' experience of transfiguration and, and, and the dazzling white clothes, that, or is it more on the disciples who witness it? I think it's more on the disciples. This event takes place for the sake of the disciples, I think. And, and that's true in all three Gospels, I would say. Yeah. This I event mean, takes, this is not, I, the baptism, the baptism, you know, I've made mm-hmm. an argument that especially, you know, in Mark's gospel, you are my mm-hmm. beloved son. You know, perhaps this was for Jesus mm-hmm. and perhaps Jesus needed to hear this. Even if Matthew says, this is my beloved right. son and more right. people heard it than just Jesus, you know, perhaps Jesus needed to hear this at the baptism. But I think at this stage, you know, Jesus is, is confident right. enough. He's aware. Yeah. It is yeah. my purpose to die. And he's able to say that out loud to his disciples, and they balk at it, and and the transfiguration comes along as another confirmation. Yes, this is my beloved son. Yes, I'm well pleased with him. Yes, he's going to die. And yes, that's my plan for him. And, and, you know, that doesn't change the fact that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, I asked that question. I had not really asked myself that question before Mm until just now. And so it was interesting um, to have you respond because I— I think I've put so much emphasis on, on the the appearance that that I, I I really was thinking of this in terms of Christ, but really kind of almost ignoring the disciples' presence, right? And yet, for the first time, this has kind of shifted my thought about this in terms of the disciples and their response and their presence there, and how that um, and how that impacts really the whole the whole purpose and the whole purpose mm-hmm. of the writing of it and the whole the whole the whole thing um it's the it's the purpose of the of this particular mm-hmm. episode yeah in, that's in really go- inter- in i mean it's really gospels. interesting yeah. it's really interesting it's definitely changed my thoughts about it i think um because i mentally put so much i am so intrigued by the description that they mm-hmm. try to use sure. um this dazzling white this for me that's such a I, I can't really get past it when i read it and so for this first time when i kind of have and um and I think actually my reformers kind of were stuck more on that too than right. they were, on, and 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 Moses and Elijah, but really not. It's more about Jesus' identity, uh, yeah, and and, yeah. and not so much about um, about helping the disciples discipleship. see discipleship. Yeah. That's really that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, helping to helping to con- to well, encourage the disciples to to and, to hold on to their faith. <laughs> and maybe maybe that's the catch for mm. our congregations is this is. This is about your discipleship mm-hmm. and your faith and your faith. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. I mean, let's face it, it, you know, we live in a world in which, um, there is, there is a lot that, that does not confirm our faith in Jesus Christ. It does not confirm our faith that, that Jesus Christ is reigning from the right hand of God and that God's will is being, you know, God is working toward the day when God's kingdom will be fulfilled on earth mm-hmm. and that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, there are a lot of things out there that just don't confirm that and actually mm-hmm. blatantly contradict that. And, it, you know, it's, it's easy for that to get to you when you're trying to live the Christian life. And this is presented as a, a sense, essentially a, an, a, an affirmation, a confirmation to those who would yeah. follow Jesus, yeah. to those who would put their faith in him, that yes, you're, you're doing the right thing here. Right. You, know, you have good reason for this. Right, right. And I think it, you know, going back to our people, to me, this is one of those things that, that helps get rid of that doubt. And I think for, 
I think for modern listeners, this is a weird episode. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, it really is. Our, our, uh, it doesn't match with our rationality. Well, you know, we don't turn to the supernatural to, to encourage our faith. Right. We, that just doesn't work for us anymore right. in, this, in this particular uh, cultural context. Right. You know, that, well, that was once a thing. Right. But for most of us now, the supernatural doesn't act right. as a confirmation of our faith. Right. But yet, here's this, here's this vision, and I'm meaning that in the full mm-hmm. sense of a vision that I think if they listen and attune themselves, if we, if we can present it well from the pulpit, that this is just to help us strengthen our faith. Well, and perhaps it's a mountaintop, experience. and perhaps a, I mean perhaps you've hit upon a, a clue there with the with the term vision, you know, in that in that if we can use this passage as a way of um, you know expounding on the vision of what God is doing through Christ mm-hmm. in this world mm-hmm. as as a way of calling people back yeah. to their back to their faith and their confidence in God. Right. Um, um, then perhaps that's the way in which we apply the transfiguration because the, just the p- pure supernatural event isn't going to help a lot of people in, right. in our world no, today. It, that that it just isn't. doesn't communicate. Right. I think that's part of the, part of the disconnect right. with the transfiguration because it's such a supernatural event right. that it's like, well, what are we supposed to do with this? Right. I think you're right. What are we supposed to do with and, it? And I think so, so if the point of the original passage is to confirm the disciples' faith in Jesus, how do we find that confirmation of our faith mm-hmm. in Jesus today? Oh. And I think one of the ways we do it is by reiterating the vision of, of what God is doing through Christ in the world. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really, really good. And I think, I think we really have, a, I hope, an outline that might help folks present this that maybe, maybe we'll hook in. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Thanks, Alan. All right. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.